Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. So after running through all of world history in 100 plus movies, I guess at some point I should actually go back and count the exact number. I know it was 100 plus 120. I don't know exactly how many movies we ended up doing. It was more than 100 movies to cover world history in chronological order. And we wanted to kind of sum that up with a look at the most interesting people that we discussed kind of throughout that timeline. Yeah, we did kind of a uh, precursor to this um, at the end of the hiatus episode for season three, but we wanted to kind of expand that to the uh, series as a whole and try and figure out who was the most interesting person that we covered uh, over the course of the podcast. The only criteria that we're trying to meet is that the person or the people in the bracket had to be at least mentioned in an episode. Um, Other than that, the rules uh, (laughs) don't really exist. (laughs) Right. This is very, very arbitrary. And this first round especially is more just kind of a knee-jerk, maybe low-researched reaction on how we feel, on who should advance, and then we'll get into more some fuller biographies as we kind of proceed throughout the tournament. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been actually kind of more interesting than I anticipated. Like, I thought this was kind of something that would just be, oh, not a time filler, but just kind of like, oh, we'll just, yeah, we'll see what happens. And it's kind of a blast in seeing what we agree and disagree on, and bringing in Joe last time to kind of break a tie was kind of spur of the moment so it's it's been fun and quick preview of today's matchups before we kind of break them down in more detail we have Genghis Khan the ruler of the Mongol Empire and kind of the founder of the Mongol Empire versus Pope Julius II the warrior pope and then we'll see Robert the Bruce of Scotland versus Henry VII of England so starting with Genghis Khan versus Pope Julius II. And just before we get into the details here, this is kind of a tough matchup. And and not to tip my hand already, but I I might already pick either of these guys over the next two guys we're going to talk about. If that, I mean, before we even get into it. Oh, really? Maybe not. Maybe not. We'll we'll, we'll see how it plays out. (laughs) Okay. That's that's kind of a bold statement. (laughs) Especially because one of these guys is Genghis Khan. That's what I'm saying. I I would pick both of these two, Genghis and Pope Julius, over the other two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, well, we can okay. talk about <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so first we're going to go through and just kind of make the impartial case for and against each, and then we'll get into more of our personal feelings. So the case for Genghis Khan, I mean, oh. I mean, take a Twinkie from Bill and Ted alone is, is worth right. getting him oh, the dub. There's a, what is it, like 16 million people on Earth today are directly descended from him? Like, talk about a lasting impact. Yeah, yeah. He had, you know, the largest, largest contiguous land empire, empire ever. Yeah. Now, of course, both of those things kind of get to extend past his lifetime. So that, you know, that, but you could almost argue maybe those don't necessarily True. count for. But I, but I still think he, there's a strong case with him kind of starting. Yeah, his father was fairly powerful locally. But then the idea that you had Mongolia was just full of all these disparate tribes and clans and Khanates yeah. or whatever they called them. And he was kind of this underdog, half outcast who then 
rises to prominence just through his sheer competence as a leader and a warrior. Right, right. And also turning like preconceived things on their head, like promoting based on performance and meritocracy. Yeah. Anytime he conquered somebody, he like took all their warriors and absorbed them, but also kind of like scattered them amongst the ranks so they couldn't really rise up. But then everyone ended up wanting to just be a part of his empire anyway. Um, he was like really religiously tolerant. Yeah. He was like, hey, pray however you want. As long as you pray for me, <laughs> you guys are good. Right. Do whatever, you know, didn't touch local governments. And then he did like a bunch of... <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like kind of kind of gray. History is not always black and white. I mean, he was doing a lot of forced relocations of like scholars and artisans and um, engineers. And like, that's bad. You shouldn't do forced <laughs> relocations of anybody. But because of that, he had all of these different ideas from across the world at the time that were all then mixed together and led to a lot of uh, new technology and innovation. Yeah, I, I think innovation is kind of the key word that most people wouldn't associate with Genghis Khan. I think it's easy to think of, you know, these figures from 800 years ago, and they're by kind of default old school. But like, no, the reason he kind of rose to prominence was because he was such an innovator for the time. Right, right. And the note I kind of made, because we do have a lot of conquerors in this first round, you know, these, these, these famous warriors and leaders and it seems like oh they're all kind of cut from the same cloth or that you could kind of lump them all together but i think the reason they each kind of stand out individually is these things don't just happen there's there's lots of unique circumstances and right. unique personalities and there's there's a reason they rose to these levels of accomplishment you don't just fall into becoming genghis khan you have to be this unique interesting person to be able to take advantage of the world you live in to be a Genghis Khan. So I don't think he's right. a product of his environment as much as he's that special of a person historically. Right. And, and some of the stuff that he was kind of pioneering, it seems common sense to us today, but it wasn't back then. And it was only because he made it so successful that it's even a thing. Like, for instance, we talked about the promoting uh, soldiers based on their performance or their merit. Right. That was unheard like, of. Back then it was like, yeah. It was like, no, you pr you promote people based on like their family or what alliance right. you want. Are, yeah, you know, are they of good they birth? Do for you. Yeah. Right. You know, but like taking your peasant archer and being like, hey, you are like the best one that I have. So you're in charge now. That that was unheard of. Back right, then. right. And even for several centuries after in other parts of the world. So the fact that the Mongols were supporting a for meritocracy sure. in the late 12th, right. early 13th century. Again, just yeah. just kind of yeah. insane. Oh, and this this isn't really a Genghis Khan thing, but uh, the Mongol women were treated like ba they were basically equal. Mm. I mean, they had they were uh, you know held roles of leadership in their tribes and everything. I mean, they were they were treated really well, and that's again not really a Genghis Khan thing, but another cool thing about the Mongol Empire, right? That, yeah, uh, we we I just thought would be cool to bring up. Yeah, we discussed him in the movie Mongol, which I do highly highly recommend. And of course, uh, we mentioned Genghis Khan isn't actually his name; that's more of a title. His name is Temujin. But yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think who else who else is known more by their title. I guess someone like the Dalai Lama, where you know he's just thinking of someone who's like known by their title, not their name. Yeah, but I think that's also kind of a testament to this guy that like there were a bunch of other cons. Oh, right, right. And he's the one that we call Genghis Khan. Like people don't even know that he has another name than that. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's again, it's just kind of kind of unique. Um, the case against Genghis Khan again, don't really have one other than. You know, you could say, yeah, sure, he's just that warrior guy, and, you know, he, he 
killed a lot of people and took over a lot of territory. And yeah, we've seen that before. I mean, again, I don't, I'm, I don't really buy that. I but say kind of the the playing devil's advocate. You could make the one hat argument, like he wasn't really oh, like right. a scholar. He was kind of just this thing, right. or anything. Yeah, he. I mean, he. He was the best at what he did, kind of like an Alexander the Great, where right. he was the best at what he did, but he, other than, like, outside of that, he wasn't, like, a painter or anything. And then also what you kind of mentioned um, at the beginning, where a lot of the stuff that the Mongol Empire is known for, he may not have necessarily had direct control over, but he was the ruler at the time, or even the stuff that happened after his death. True. Um, that he influenced, like, how much of that... Is he actually directly responsible? Right. The peak of the Mongol Empire was after him. Right. Okay. And then moving to Pope Julius II, who we saw in The Agony and the Ecstasy as kind of a frenemy of Michelangelo. Right. As he was painting the Sistine Chapel. So I I chose him, or really kind of pushed for him, because I think he's kind of fascinating. I think I said when I first talked about him in that episode, how... You could do a whole TV series, Game of Thrones style, about the life of Pope Julius II and how oh, absolutely, he, you know, kind of goes from a, a young kid who gets interested in the church, not from any kind of level of devotion, but because he liked the politics and power struggles involved right. behind the scenes and even saw the church as a way to forward the interests of Italy and his own ambitions and... Right. Religion really didn't even matter at all. And of course, you you know, then it's not surprising that this is, you know, not long before Martin Luther. And there's probably even a correlation between the corruption that Luther was seeing from popes like <laughs> Julius II. I was going to say, yeah. one, one of the big things that Martin Luther had a problem with was the selling of indulgences. And one of the things that Pope Julius II loved the most was selling indulgences to get the money for the Catholic <laughs> Church. He loved it. <laughs> <laughs> but and just so many things that he I mean, he's ah, there's so many things that are around today that you wouldn't think about being from Pope Julius II. It's kind of remember we talked about you know the stuff in Russia from Ivan the Terrible's time. You have the same kind of things here, where like the renovations of St. Peter's Basilica, the Sistine Chapel. Oh, I was gonna say like every art, right? Like every big art thing that you go to see in the Vatican, probably commissioned by Pope Julius II. Like he commissioned so right. many renovations and restorations and uh yeah the painting of the Sistine Chapel yeah huge also kind of interesting that he chose his pope name not after Pope Julius the first but after Julius Caesar right right which I think is kind of cool that was right he wasn't trying to invoke the previous Pope Julius he was trying to invoke the conqueror Julius Caesar and he kind of was that also in Italy and again, they called him the warrior pope because right. he was out there like a general leading battles as the pope, which is just something we can't even get our mind around today. Right. And yeah. and again, so this is, you know, largely in the uh, 15th century, early 16th century. And again, countries just weren't the same back then as far as borders and all that. Italy was kind of like what we see in a couple centuries from Germany with all these kind of fractured different states and territories and a lot of then outside yeah. forces from the Holy Roman Empire or France and everybody else kind of wanted to have a stake in all these little pieces of Italy. Right. Like you think of Italy today, you know, like the cities of Venice and Florence and right. Rome and Naples. But back then, those were almost like separate states or countries right. almost. Like they weren't united um, all together. Right, with yet. various alliances and they would, things would shift. There's basically a whole period called the Italian Wars where everyone's right. kind of trying to, you know, get this influence in Italy. 
And through Pope Julius II's influence as warrior pope, he kind of, you know, quote, wins for the Italian cause and for Rome. And as a pope, he's, you know, still fathering, you know, children and, and, and you know, there's <laughs> yeah. all kinds of nepotism at the time. He had like uncles who were popes yeah. and, and it's kind of the whole Medici's versus the Borgia families and all that conflict and just so, so much drama and conflict. It's very, very interesting. He founded the Swiss Guard that's still around today, the guards that guard the Pope. Although at the time that he founded them, they were more like an elite military unit to like go oh. fight battles for the <laughs> right. Pope. Right, now they're ornamental. Uh, now they're more <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, ceremonial and, and more like personal protection for the Pope. But yeah, back then, kind of a kind of a different role. The 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 case against again, also not a I don't really have a strong one other than you can say, yeah, there's lots of people doing these kinds of things as far as the whole machinations behind the scenes and his name hasn't carried through to the ages. And most people listening to this haven't really heard of Pope Julius II, even if they've heard of some of these other effects of his life and reign. But again, I don't really have a strong argument against them. So I mean, I I guess you could there could be an argument against that, like there were a lot of kind of influential and really interesting popes around that time. No, right, right. He's probably the most interesting one or one of the more interesting ones, but there are there are a lot of other popes doing this kind of like intrigue and not necessarily fighting battles like he did, but uh yeah. So when it comes down to the the matchup here, if we choose who to advance, Genghis Khan versus Pope Julius II, and again, this is where I was saying I would probably pick both of these guys over the next two we're gonna talk about. If you wanted to go Pope Julius, I'd probably be okay with it, but I think you just got to go Genghis Khan. I mean, I was gonna he's say, a heavy I, hitter. I, uh, he's a heavy hitter. I can't vote against Genghis Khan as much as I would love to see Pope Julius II advance. Yes, um, yes. And it's just kind of where he ended up in the bracket. No, right. Yep. But uh, yeah, I, I got to vote Genghis Khan. No, and again, I, I, and I, I think as I look at some other future matchups here, I, I think that's just kind of interesting that almost it's like you kind of know some of these people are going to get eliminated in the first round. But you want to send them off in style. Make sure we get the respects. So pour one out for Pope Julius II. He uh, is a very, very interesting figure that I I may even try to write about him at some point. I think I think he's fascinating. I need to look and see if there's been you know you know other books, how many books about him or something. I, I feel like there's a lot of rich stuff to mine there. For sure. But the dude's going against Genghis Khan. Yeah. Who I mean, who's one of our? We talk about it's one of those things where yeah, there's probably. 10 of these people we think can make the championship or whatever. But uh, Genghis Khan is going to be a heavy hitter for the rest of this tournament. Absolutely. Okay, so congrats, Genghis. Have a Twinkie. And uh, we'll see you in the next round. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our second matchup today, Robert the Bruce, the first king of United Scotland after he defeats the English in the Battle of Bannockburn, versus Henry VII, the first Tudor king who ends the War of the Roses by marrying... Elizabeth of York and uniting the houses of Lancaster and York into the one rose, the Tudor rose, and attempting to bring peace and prosperity to a war-torn England after decades of fighting. So, the case for Robert the Bruce. So, what's interesting too, obviously people may have noticed that, so Robert the Bruce from Braveheart, he's the the actual kind of, you know, important historical figure for Scotland at the time. William Wallace is, was kind of less known to history until the movie Braveheart. And I kind of wanted to pick him a little bit to be, uh, oh, not argumentative, but kind of like William Wallace was the obvious choice. But I remember always watching this, you know, Braveheart, well, not growing up, I guess it came out a little later than that, but always watching Braveheart and loving Braveheart. I was like, well, man, 
I want to know more about this Robert the Bruce guy. He just seemed, he's definitely more important right. historically. And to me, always kind of seemed right. more interesting. And so I really wanted to kind of yeah. highlight that with this. For sure. Especially like when you, so like doing the research for this, it's like, he's definitely the more interesting character in the movie Braveheart. And they did later make a kind of a not as good movie that I haven't seen called Robert the Bruce. I think it actually came out within the last couple of years. It's starring the same guy. No, which got me so excited, but the reviews were not good. Right. But the better movie, I think, is uh, the Netflix movie, um, Outlaw King. That's right. And I still haven't watched Chris that one. Pine playing Robert the Bruce, which is actually pretty historically accurate. There's a couple of things like uh, Edward II isn't really portrayed like Edward II from oh, history. Okay. Um, but a lot, of the, a lot of the events and stuff are, are, are pretty historically accurate. Yeah, yeah. And again, we've kind of talked about Braveheart before, where a lot of the stuff with the whole leper father and all that stuff was kind of fabricated for, for the film Braveheart. But, and, but Bruce, and again, the, the, the Hillary Braveheart kind of has, you know, the famous Battle of Bannockburn, where they even kind of show him how he was inspired by William Wallace to then, you know, lead his troops into battle and not just, you know, not just mm-hmm. tuck his tail to bow before the English, but that was years after, like a decade after William Wallace and stuff. So a lot of the stuff right. that the movie yeah. made seem like it was all about William Wallace. Yeah. It's really all about Robert the well, Bruce. Because the he was doing a lot of political dealings before he was ever in right. an actual military conflict against the English. He was trying to do, he was trying to get the crown of Scotland. He was a, a proponent of Scottish independence, but he wanted to get it in kind of like the nice diplomatic political way where he was going to make, you know, alliances. And, and he actually like multiple times just flip flopped back and forth which side he wanted to be on. Oh, right. Like the Scottish, you know, independence hardliners. We want to kill the English and then also the side of Edward the first of England until, yeah, eventually he uh, he killed uh, John Common in a church, which I think is kind of gangster. Not not himself though, right? He kind of like fought him and then said, "I don't know if he died or not." And then one of his buddies went back and finished him off. That's that's <laughs> that's true. It's it's like reported that he killed him, but the circumstance, even the reason that they were in the church or what they were fighting about or how it happened, none of it's really known. A lot of it is a uh, kind of historical hearsay. But I mean, John Common died, and Robert the Bruce was there, and then Robert the Bruce is crowned Robert the First, King of Scots. Um, and declared the outlaw king by mm. Edward first. No, it, it's it, yeah. So William Wallace, just the comparison I just thought of. It's almost like if you say compare it to roughly the American Civil War, William Wallace was John Brown, a fierce warrior for the cause, but didn't necessarily right. have a lot of political influence, and might have at right. times been more trouble than he was worth. And William Wallace was not. He was trying to kind of like play the same game as the English, whereas Robert the Bruce was like, hey, we're never going to win this war straight up. We can't fight the English straight up on open battlefield. He was the one who was like, we need to do guerrilla warfare tactics. We need to be like, you know, do hit and run tactics. Um, And that's how ultimately he just kind of like needled the English army for years. You know, he would, they would like sneak off into the hills during the summertime. And then in the winter, when all the English would go back down south to England, then they would come out and they would like burn and loot all the castles and then go get chased back into the hills and disappear. And they never fought the English on like open big battlefields like you see in uh, Braveheart. But that's the reason that they were 
successful. Right, right. Because when you're outmatched, you have to do that stuff. new tactics. Yeah. Right. The, the case against Robert the Bruce, I, I think, would be that he's, even if you put him ahead of William Wallace, he's still not the most interesting person in the movie Braveheart. But <laughs> you look at right. <laughs> Isabella of France. Because Isabella's or, yeah, in it. Yeah. yeah. Or, frankly, we could have chosen Edward Longshanks, you know, that's true. And, and put yep. him ahead of him too. Uh, so I say that, yep. that's the case against. And honestly, yeah. as excited, I do think it was good to have Robert Bruce on this list. But I was kind of doing some of the research, and I was like, oh man, I uh, is he the most boring person of the thirty-two we picked? And I still like him because I like everyone we picked. But I was just like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I was I just felt like less enthusiastic to learn more than I kind of already did about Robert the Bruce compared to some of the others I looked at. Again, that's just, that's kind of the case, I guess. I don't know. I think he's, I think he's super fascinating. I think that the story, I think that the story of his fight against the English is really fascinating because it has that political kind of like backstabby behind the scenes stuff at the beginning of it. And then it turns into this like guerrilla war and he's the outlaw king and he's hiding his like wife and daughters were captured and were held in England for years. I think I think he's super fascinating, and and this is something that I I guess I didn't really realize I maybe knew but never really put the pieces together in my head. But so Robert the first, Robert the Bruce was crowned Robert the first King of Scots. His grandson Robert the second, who's the son of his daughter, was the first king in, in the House of Stuart that ruled Scotland for like three hundred years, all the way until James the sixth of Scotland becomes James oh, right, the of England. Right. And then that continues till today. So if you go from Queen Elizabeth, right. yeah. direct, she's a direct descendant. He's her 19 great grandfather. Oh, right. Not even like an uncle. Right. He is. He, yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, we can say that about his opponent today, Henry VII. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what I didn't think about that. So it's the dueling ancestors of, of our current, our, our uh, the current queen. Uh, of England <laughs> at time of recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, long may she reign, but she's getting up there. <laughs> yeah. God save the queen. Yeah, God, God save the queen. <laughs> Just like knock on wood. What, what's the protocol there? I, I want, <clears throat> we're, not, we're not British. <laughs> okay, so Henry Seventh. So the case for Henry Seventh is... Again, I think it's kind of an, I just to be contrarian, similar with Robert the Bruce over William Wallace. I kind of was being a little contrarian when I picked Henry the Seventh over his more famous son Henry the Eighth. That'll come up in that'll come up in arguments again. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> but so but we did talk about Henry the Seventh. Uh, he comes up in both Richard the Third. He is the Henry mm-hmm. Henry who then defeats Richard the Third in the yeah. Battle of Bosworth Field. Kills him. Yeah. Well, I'm, I don't think he not personally. Yeah. 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 But yes, so Richard III was the last English king to die on the field of battle. Henry VII was the last English king to win the throne via battle. <laughs> so right. it's yeah. no coincidence there. Right. He won It's it, the War of the Roses, which is what one of the heavy historical influences for Game of Thrones. Yeah, absolutely. Even the, even the House of, of La- Lancaster, of which right. Henry VII represents, Lannister. becomes Lan- Lannister. Yeah, so it, it's, right. it's not... And even the York, they even talked about... They're not as related in the show Game of Thrones, but York versus Stark being the single mm-hmm. syllable kind of hard sounding K. And that's not a coincidence either. It, it is kind of the right. Lan- Lannisters versus the Starks is the Yorks versus the Lancasters. So I 
Okay, I'm definitely already getting the vibe that I'm a way bigger Henry VII fan than than you are. <laughs> so what I find fascinating is, so you think about the whole War of the Roses, this is all the ancestors of Edward III. So the son of Edward II, who we saw in Braveheart, the grandson of Edward I, Longshanks, we saw in Braveheart. He had like, oh, I forget off the top of my head, four or five sons that then all have sons, which you think would be like, oh, good. We have no worry about, you know, having enough sons Plenty to rule. Of- Plenty of spares to the air, right? Right, which is a problem. So his, right. so ever, ever, whenever ever the third, this is getting a little before obviously Henry the Seventh timeline, but and this is also just off the top of my head, so bear with me. Uh, so Edward the Third's oldest son was Edward the Black Prince, who we just saw in the Knight's Tale, but he died before Edward the Third, his father. Right, and then so we go to Richard the Second. Actually, he's the son of the Black Prince, right? Not the son of. Yeah, he's the son of the Black Prince. Yeah, yeah. So, right. so he was young, and when he gets the crown, and was just not super popular. Anyway, I don't have to rehash the whole the whole thing. But basically, then the houses of York and Lancaster all just descend from Edward the Third, and the different sons and grandsons, some through female lines, some through male lines, and they're fighting for mm-hmm. years. And that's this is all the Henrys the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth, all that stuff. Of course, right. that also gets into France because you got Henry the Fifth and the Battle of Agincourt over in France. But right. then you also have the other house with Edward the Edward well, the and Fourth, Henry, Henry the Fourth, the Usurper King. Right, right. Yeah, on the other side with the Edward the Fourth, and then Richard the Third, and then so what it's all set up for here. And the reason I am a big Henry the Seventh fan, well, one of the many reasons I'm a big Henry the Seventh fan. <laughs> He was kind of the last opposition standing. So you basically have York has just whittled down to Richard III, who again is not as vile as history sees him. He was the brother of Edward IV. He did possibly, probably have his nephews uh, killed in the tower, although that might have actually been Henry VII preemptively, knowing he would need them out of the way if he was going to take the throne from Richard III. We really don't know. Right. But yeah. Uh, so basically York is down to Richard III, who has no... Actually, he might have had a kid of his own actually i don't remember off the top of my head um it is it just doesn't come up like come up later or dies before richard the third i forget exactly on that one i'm gonna edit all that out <laughs> so on the other side on the lancaster side henry the tudor is kind of just the last lancastrian left and has really no strong claim to the throne he has the weakest claim in the throne in centuries Mm-hmm. And he, the Tudor family kind of just fascinates me in that the whole Tudor name comes from who was basically a servant of the queen. And when the king died, she maybe married, maybe didn't even actually marry Owen Tudor and has a kid with him, who again may or may not have even been a bastard. But then her, so her son, the son of Owen Tudor, Edmund Tudor, was the half brother of Henry the Sixth, who really liked his half-brother and made him more powerful, bastard or not, or, you know, this whole mysterious servant background, low birth or whatever or not. He really didn't care, and he just kind of elevated his half-brother, through, you know, kind of through the ranks, even if people didn't like it. And then that son, Edmund Tudor, marries a more legitimate heir to Edward III. He marries, you know, marries uh, basically a granddaughter of Edward III, Right. And then that son is Henry Tudor, who through his mom's line goes back to Edward III. It's a little weak. You're not supposed to go through the women like that to make your claim to the right. throne. But Henry VII does. He's in exile over in France for like 14 years and then comes and wins the throne from Richard III in combat. And what I was actually kind of confused by is, so famously they talk about 
No one has successfully conquered England or invaded England since William the Conqueror in 1066. Napoleon couldn't do it. Hitler couldn't do it. But I'm thinking, wait, didn't Henry VII do it? Why does he not get credit for invading and conquering England? He won by wide of combat right. coming and over from France. And I'm, I'm, I and think I'm missing something. Yeah, and you could also make that argument for Edward III, too, with Isabella and Roger Mortimer coming across from France also and deposing. Not true. I mean, he... You know, it's it's kind of I guess different because it's like Edward the Third is the dude's son, so it right really count, and there was internal forces already at play in England. I guess there's probably some of that here, where you had right. people who supported Henry the Tudor who were already in England and did kind of flock to his side against Richard. So maybe that's a factor. I'm just a little curious on how they decide that, but it was again I just kind of you know watched like a first little part of a documentary and talked about like you know here's the shore where henry's troops would have landed and he would have knelt here and prayed you know because they were underdogs too it wasn't just that they yeah. invaded with this better force and beat richard iii no they were drastically outnumbered against richard iii and right. just between defections and and i don't know exactly how the battle played out but you know henry the seventh does win and then you get into we're going way longer here because again I'm, i like henry the seventh so <laughs> again so you have you've had decades of conflicts and these houses fighting so how do you how do you end it well you marry as a lancaster you marry a york princess so he marries the sister of the princes in the tower combining the houses of lancaster and york and he also kind right. of makes sure that anybody else who could claim his throne ends up dead um but again that right. just makes it more interesting exactly yeah. And then they have a son who, again, I love, love this little piece of trivia. Not only do they name the son Arthur. Right. Because the dude's an absolute legend. He's like, yes. oh, yeah. Yes. I just conquered the throne. Yes. I vanquished all my enemies. And now my son is going to be King Arthur. Right. But that, but that's <laughs> even tied to like, so Owen Tudor was Welsh. Well, that ties in too. When you th- the stories of King Arthur... He was fighting the invading Saxons as a Briton king. And then the Britons, like, right. I don't want to spell it, but Britons, not Britain. Anyway, they get kind of exiled. Right. They get pushed off into Wales while the Saxons control England before the Norman conquest. So Wales, speaking a different language, has to go back to the Celtic Britain roots. Owen Tudor was Welsh. So that is where King Arthur was. The, the, that was the same kind of culture there. So it's even kind of bringing in his right. Welsh roots of the king, invoking King Arthur. And Thomas Mallory wrote Le Morte Arthur like the same year that Henry VII took the throne. So like it was even like a pop culture reference at the time with all this weight to it. It's just beautiful. But Prince Arthur dies before his father. And I guess right. my other son, Henry, can be king next, Henry VIII. Right. Yep. <laughs> And they talk, I saw a video too, they just talked about how paranoid, and he basically was just so concerned with people coming after his power and what that would do to England and, of course, himself, that he was, like, super paranoid and untrusting. And He was fighting off rebellions and stuff too, wasn't he? Even well, true, no, right, him. he had cause, he had cause, but it sounds like even, he was almost a little crazy about it, though, too. Like, he was almost, oh, like, gotcha. like, mumbly and paranoid and looking for, yes, there were people after him, but... Not everybody was after him. <laughs> right. Anyway, so So that's the argument for. Okay. I'll let you I'll let you handle the case against because <laughs> No, I mean the, the case against, um it, it's real it's not it's not gonna be anywhere near that long or in depth, but um it, as devil's advocate, maybe he's not even the most interesting King Henry. Like you have <laughs> Well, because you have no, like, you're right. Henry you're the right. Fourth, the usurper king. You have Henry V, who you know Agincourt, implements the right, longbow right. and wins at Agincourt and conquers France. And then you have his son, Henry VIII, who has all the wives and the drama in the Catholic Church. And so you know, 
Henry the Seventh is fascinating, but there's a lot of fascinating King Henrys. Yeah, we now that's. I mean, we could we could vote now. I guess, but that's <laughs> that's really the only thing that I had against. Uh, no, I will say when we were when we were de- deciding who would be on this list at all, we kind of both agreed there's going to be a King Henry, and I felt like right. Henry the Seventh was while well, my first choice was probably your third or fourth choice of of Henry's. Yeah. So so I get that. I get that is that is a that is a good that is a good argument. And I'm guessing the listener can tell which way both of us are leaning. <laughs> yeah. So I I will say even though I think it's very clear that we're both voting for Henry the Seventh. Oh, I thought you were gonna Robert. That, am I cur- Oh, I thought you were gonna go Robert the Roos. I it was close. Okay. Okay. It was close. Oh, I'm going Henry the Seventh. I was prepared to bet. <laughs> or to, to yeah. Wager. No. 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 So it it was it was close. I think that Henry the Seventh just has. There's more to his story than to Robert the Bruce's. But I think Robert the Bruce is way more interesting than he maybe gets credit for a lot. And he probably even than I'm giving him credit for. And I need to watch that Outlaw movie, uh, Outlaw King movie and, and definitely look. And I, yeah. and I do find it fascinating. But yeah, I'm, I'm a big Henry VII fan. And honestly, I, the more I learn about him, the more of a fan I become of him. So, um, okay. Yeah. Henry Tudor does. I was expecting to vote. Although, I wasn't going to bet too much. Because I don't want to waste a lot of points on someone who will probably just lose to Genghis Khan in the next round. <laughs> yeah. A little defensive with the uh, with the voting, but it didn't come down to that because you went you went for Henry the Seventh as well, right? Yeah. Okay, so we we agreed on both of those. There, one was a little closer maybe than the other. Oh, again, those are again four four strong candidates. But again, that's kind of what this whole tournament has been. Genghis Khan and Henry the Seventh will face off in the Sweet Sixteen, and next time. Join us as we'll have Mozart versus Cardinal Richelieu and Queen Elizabeth I versus Wyatt Earp. Oh, yeah. <laughs>